This is the Friday edition, the one with Brent Winters that we all look forward to. And uh, the date on today is August the uh, September the 4th, excuse me, 9-4-20. Not too far away, I guess 9-11 is next week. That's always interesting. See what that comes up this year. Uh, Roger Sales, your host, People's Patriot Network, our venue, and the Radio Ranch is what we have identified our two-hour intellectual exchange of ideas as and uh, once again it's brent with us on friday and always a refreshing event for a number of reasons brent you doing all right today right well you were doing all right a minute ago <laughs> now hold it I don't brent are you there he said, he said, well he'll he call said a signal I guess that's right. He did say he was having a bad signal, uh, so maybe he popped out. There was three gray people a minute ago. And now there's two, so that might be him, the missing one. I'm sure he's going to get back in. Hope you know. It's always some technical with some spot somewhere. Uh, anyway, we just roll right on and deal with it. I see we got Chris on the board. Uh, I, we. Uh, uh, got our buddy Ben. Old buddy Ben has been around many years with us. Uh, was absent for a while, kind of back. Glad to have you along, Ben. And uh, new 11 showed up there. Hoping it's Brent going to come back in with us. If not, I'll turn it over. We've got a bunch of things to talk about, obviously. Brent, did you get back in yet? Okay, well, I'll uh, let you see what he can we can't do anything for his end from our end here today. Um, lots of stuff going on. I really want, I love Brent to be on because he has a tendency to tie us back to the spiritual basis of all this and a good solid grounding is what we all need on top of everything else he brings. Cody, uh, you're back with us, so uh, we might as well poll you first here, buddy. We put out a clarion call because we didn't hear from you for a couple of days, but it seems you're, <laughs> seems you're all right, right? Did you joust at the window? Yeah, it, uh, a little bit. It, you know, I, it was a mistake to try to do it on a Monday. I was trying to do it the, with the theme of the end of summer before the fall of the Federal Reserve, but it was kind of a mistake to try to do it on a Monday. But uh, we're going to go to the uh, Kentucky Derby. Apparently, they're not having any uh, fans there, but I assume there's going to be some VIPs. And then there's also going to be the NFAC doing their protest thing. So I'm hoping to educate some of the black community over the uh, Federal Reserve issue, and that being the, the real present-day form of slavery that's going on. And uh, Cody, see if we can build a coalition. You, you know, this is a little – if you get into a discussion with somebody, you can maybe do it without getting into – raising the blanket edge up too much but there's something i developed years ago and i used it a lot i wrote about it in my book and i've had other people that read that use it and get back to me with feedback and i'm going to tell you what if you're playing with the money supply this is highly effective okay okay you get yourself a walking liberty silver dollar 
and you go and you get in a situation where you can start this discussion with somebody and the best way to do it you know gold and silver when you take a coin and spin it and it lands on some surface that makes a sound that nothing else makes i don't know if you've noticed that yeah. right? but yeah. so ideally you'd be in that situation where you could take that silver dollar and spin it a little bit and let it go around a little and then it makes that really wonderful sound as it settles in okay and you uh, take one of these that was done and mended recently, within the last 20, 30 years, okay? Uh, the one I, I have that I've used for many years doing this, I think it's a 96 Silver Walking Liberty. So it's been in my pocket because I did this a lot, and it looks used, you know? And a lot of people will take that and go, wow, I bet that's old, okay? And you go, well, not really. What date is it? And they go, well, 1996, Okay, and then you say, well, what does it say on the back? And they flip it over, United States of America, one ounce fine silver, one dollar. Right? Yeah. That's what it says around the periphery. Now, you, you get them to keep that in their hand. Now you give them a one dollar, and you put it in their other hand. All right? And you say, what does that say in big letters on the front? United States of America, $1. Some people pull a Federal Reserve note in there, but it's not large letters, okay? So you go, okay, well, they both say United States of America, and they both say $1, right? And you get them to agree, okay? Yes, they're right there holding them in their hands. And then you go, why does it take 30 of this dollar to buy one of this dollar? Yeah, I mean, that... It's a little okay. simpler to now, tell people Cody, why, hold, why are we paying interest hold, hold to a, on, a privately owned bank that makes money out of thin air. For, yeah, they, they, they so will what? understand what I just demonstrated to you. It will have a high, far in, more impact than you giving them a bunch of that stuff because they don't understand that. Okay, They understand when they got it in their hands in the unequal weights and measure. Now, Cody, I'm not kidding you. I've been doing that for over 25 years to people. All right. And I've literally seen people's eyes roll back in the back of their head. Okay. That's the impact that has on them. What you're telling them a bunch of verbiage using words they have no idea and don't understand, and they pass it right off. This stops people in their tracks. Now, we had my wife, my second wife, God rest her soul, had a, a developed and built from scratch the second rated highest rated consignment store in the city of Atlanta okay and she used, she had a but she's a real big christian she had a whole bunch of these housewives in north atlanta the affluent side that were married to doctors and lawyers and rich business people and they'd come in there and bring all this stuff in and so she had a thriving little business all right and a bunch of friends that did business with her on a consistent basis and so I'd hang around the store a lot and I'd do that to a lot of her customers she'd say Roger show so and so you know and so I'd do the little demonstration for her and all that was before 9-11 all right and a lot of them were dazzled, a lot of them were amazed, some of them were interested, some of them weren't, or didn't, didn't appear to be. But, buddy, when 9-11 happened, you wouldn't have believed how many of them came back to us and said, what's happening? What's going on? Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. Now I've experienced that personally. That's a real good. I put that in the book, and I had a guy wrote me an email back. He said, "You know, I read that in your book, and I was sitting with my wife in the waiting room while my wife was in at a doctor's appointment." And I was sitting out there, and I just read it, and I had a quarter in my pocket, and there's a woman over there, and I did it on her, and she almost freaked out right there in the doctor's office, okay? Yeah. So uh, it's a highly effective way. We've talked about how do you break this down and get it across to people. Well, if you're talking to some people and got their attention, you pull that on them, I, I'm just telling you it's highly effective. If you want to use it or not, practice it a little bit. You can get real. You can have a lot of fun with it, too, by the way. Morning, Roger. Hey, yeah. there's Mr. Daryl. Hey, morning. Good morning. Hey, uh, uh, good morning. I, I just wanted to jump in there with to uh, for uh, for uh, help Don Cody there for a minute. Um, is that Roger's talking about starting with the lesson plan with lesson one, Cody? Uh, you're okay. talking about giving them lesson plan number ten. You have to start with lesson plan number one before you get to lesson plan 10 when you're teaching. So uh, <clears throat> you, you, have to, you have to have the uh, awareness and uh, the sensibility to facilitate those people who do not. They don't have it. They can't even. What you're doing is you have to ask them the question because they don't have the imagination to do it. Right. So you, you take on the responsibility when you open your pie hole and you come into this space, you take on the responsibility of facilitating their learning and not uh, uh, exactly Let me. saying what you want to say, when you, you want to say it, how you want to say it. You have to work from the perspective of serving that person that you're talking to. And, and not fulfilling yourself. That's right. Cody, okay. let me put it So this that way. means you I've, start with lesson plan one and Rogers. You know, yeah, uh, Daryl and I are both teaching. Lesson plan one is the example that Roger gave. You're, well, the, the lesson plan point five is this. Okay. People don't know, don't care how much you know, Cody, until they know how much you care. That's first. Okay, and what you're trying okay. to do is you're yeah. trying to push the rope instead of pull it. Would you agree with me that it's easier to pull a rope than yeah. it is to push a rope? Right. Yeah. What about if if time is of the essence, or you have a group of yeah. people, and you just say, you know, why is the Federal Reserve called federal when it's privately owned and not owned by the government? You know, would that people. that seems like that's another way to very quickly uh, make a point well cody cody you can but but does it fit your audience uh, there's not just one answer to any of this you have to pick right, your yeah. message for, within context of your audience so you could you could take people who have uh, our past lesson plan one okay once they get lesson plan one under their belt which means You've showed them lesson plan one, and they're now more curious. They're interested. If, if they're not interested after lesson plan one and they don't want to hear lesson plan one, you're wasting your time. Oh, oh, you know, I right. forgot. Yeah. I forgot the punchline on that trick, by the way. When you get finished, you say, why does it take now 30, 35 of these to buy one of these? 
and they look at you with that look, and then you respond like this. When you understand that, you'll understand how and why the world works the way it does. That's the punchline. Roger. Yes. Roger, who, can, can you hear Brent? I hear you, bud. There you are. You got back with us. Well, yeah. I, well, it was the, I'm on the telephone. I gave up on the computer kept coming and going. So okay. the telephone works, doesn't it? Yeah, it works good. fine, man. We hear you pretty yeah. good. So the well, internet's well, having a bad hair day, your, huh? Yeah. I don't know what it is. Yeah, I got you a, never know. That, that illustration. Are you there? Yes, we're here. Maybe I'm not working. No, we're here, bud. Oh, uh, that illustrate. Okay, <laughs> that that illustration with the thirty uh, pieces of paper for one silver dollar was pretty good. It made me think of what Dan Crane told me. You know, Dan Crane was. Uh, I remember that. The chairman of. Dan Crane was chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, I believe. Uh, after Rostenkowski, remember Rostenkowski? Sure do. Yeah, well, I think then then the Republicans took over in 1994, and then Dan Crane was, he'd been there for years already, but then he became chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, which is the big one, the, the pituitary gland of of uh, Congress, <laughs> controlling gland. Well, he, uh, he was uh, talking to me once. I saw him in Washington, D.C., maybe, I don't remember, and he said, Brent, I'll tell you how you can do great if you can pull this off. And he said, it's a little different where you are, where I am. I could do this quickly, and I could I could make a lot of money. He said, you need a lot of money. I said, well, what do you do? He said, well, what we did was I just set up, have people set up coffees where you come into people's homes that have a dozen people there, and then you'd spend 15 minutes with them, meet them, and talk just a little bit. Then you'd have a driver, and then you you go to the next home, and you have it lined up so that you can just go in a series from one or the other, every 15 minutes you're meeting another dozen people. I said, well, how's that make you money? He said, well, here's what you do. And he said, you'd be surprised if you keep moving to stick to the schedule how much money you can make. He said, what you do is this. And he said, it's a great object lesson at the same time. He said, and I did this. So here's what I did. I did what he told me. So I had a few coffees set up. It didn't work where I lived because it was rural, and you had to drive so far to get from house to house, you know. But I did a few um, where he was at, it was more city. He could go faster. If he got a key to one of those apartment buildings, he could cover a precinct or two, you know. Um, but I'd sat down with a dozen people in the living room, and I, I said, uh, everybody here got a dollar bill. If you got a dollar bill, pull it out. Just one dollar. No, just a one. Well, I ain't got a one. Well, a five will work. But if you got a one, I'd always say, use a one. And uh, they'd get out a dollar bill, and I'd say, okay, now everybody pass them around to the left, just like you're uh, dealing cards or how you're we supposed to pass food to the left, just like dealing cards when you're in the, sitting at the table. Pass them around to the left, and, and they come around, and they all came to me, and I took them, and I said, now watch. Here's, I folded them in half, that pile of $1 bills. I stuck them in my front pocket of my shirt, and I said, that's the way Washington, D.C. works. It's that simple. <laughs> and they'd laugh. They'd laugh, and I'd keep the money. And I go to the next, uh, you know, the next uh, coffee. And you, it's amazing. Now I, I figured up if I could have went every every twenty minutes from coffee to coffee, I could have made a lot of gas money and stuff like that. But the other thing about that, of course, in the political realm, when you if somebody gives you a dollar bill or you steal it from them or 
trick them out of it, like in that case, if you can get them to laugh about it, well, they feel like they gave it to you. And if you get them to pay a dollar, they'll scream and holler for their horse. They just bet it on. They they bought a dollar ticket on that horse. And I always keep in mind that when you go to the, when Cody, he's talking about going to the Derby, when you go to the racetrack, uh, the people that buy the big tickets don't scream and holler, but the people that buy the $2 tickets scream the loudest. And that's worth a lot in politics if somebody's screaming about you or talking about you, hollering about you. I used to go to little towns, a little, lot of little towns, you know, 200 people, 500 people in these counties, and I'd drive around. And if I could, I wouldn't try to go door to door. That was a- well, I'm going to get a drop out on the phone, I, I guess. go up and talk to them. And- and they, they'd say, sit down and visit a while. I want to get you a glass of iced tea. And you sit and talk a little bit. They'll tell everybody in town. Everybody in town will come and say, who was that guy over at your house? Of course, they may see. If you're in, I was in my pickup truck, I had a sign in the back of it said, winners for Congress. And then they'd say, well, that was the guy running for Congress. What, who was he? Where's he from? What's he like? You got any kids? You know his parents? What's his last name? Of course, they see that. But then they want to know what you do, who you are, what you say. And that's the way the word then spreads. And if you try to talk to everybody, you're, that's not efficient use of time. you got to talk to the right people. Very good so point. At any rate, that's what I, I – That's a, Those are really accurate points for politicking, I would think. Brent, I never thought about that before. Oh, that yeah. parlor trick of a dollar and is also, cool. Uh, <laughs> Whoever came yeah. up with that, that's smart. Yeah, and that, it's the simplicity of it. That was my idea. That was Dan Crane's idea. I don't know where he got it, but it's the simplicity of it that communicates. And that's what you were saying about the 30, 30 piece of paper versus the uh, one coin. You just look at it. It's an object lesson. And if you can't, if you can't go from the known to the unknown, you're not going to teach anything. You know, mm-hmm. Jesus Christ always went from the known to the unknown. You know, he didn't start with the unknown and say, here it is, and I'll explain it to you. He just said, the kingdom of heaven is like a man that bought a field or the kingdom of heaven is like this or like that, or, uh, ye are the vine. I know I, I am the vine. Ye are the branches. I am the door. He, 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 he talked about something they understood. And he said, well, that's what the kingdom, the, the authority arrangement of the skies is like, it's like that. And he didn't always say exactly how. Now, sometimes the his learners would come and say, well, what do you mean by all this? And then he would explain it. He'd say, well, this in the narrative represents this, and this represents that. But yesterday we went over the so-called parable of the good Samaritan. It wasn't a parable. It was a real story, and he he says so. He said a a certain man. He didn't say the kingdom of heaven is like or as. He said a certain man came down from Jerusalem or from, from Jerusalem to Jericho. And then before that, it said a certain lawyer stood up and asked him a question. Well, this all really happened. And then he told him a real story that was in the gossip and the news. But when he got done, it was a something that was an object lesson. He didn't start explaining anything. He just told a story. You know, as I've heard people say that uh, stories, no, how they facts, facts tell, stories sell. Facts tell, but stories sell. And if you combine the two, then you got something. But if you don't tell the story, I'm, I don't want to listen to somebody lecture me about facts. I do. I've done it, of course. I went to school, and that's what that was all about. And you get disciplined to do it a little bit. But even if you're disciplined to do that, 
you still want to hear the story. I want to hear the story. You tell me a good story, and I'll listen to you for a while if it's a good story. It's got to be a story that holds my attention. But and you, Or you give an object lesson like you just did. I used to do that when I was in the gold business. People would say, well, I'd want them to invest in what we were doing. We were placer mining. That's not hard rock. That's placer. That's where the gold is not in situ, not in a rock formation deep in the ground, but it is uh, – eroded away and washed out and is in some alluvium, some gravel or down in a creek bed or something. And uh, people, and then we had that kind of claims. It was a, a creek. They say at home, a creek. A creek. I try to say creek. It's supposed to sound better, but my, it doesn't sound natural. To, it doesn't feel natural to my tongue, so it's a creek. But that had in the creek, and they'd come to my house, and, and I live close by, and they'd say, well, what, how do you what's the chance of hitting, hitting, uh, finding gold? And I said, well, same chance of finding gold as yet. There is finding oil about the same. Well, what do you mean? Well, uh, I'd say either you got some change in your pocket or I got some change and give me a handful of change. And I would just take the change and I'd throw it out on the living room floor on the carpet. And then I'd say, okay, let's get down on our knees here, right in front of this change. And you watch me. I'm going to, you watch me. I'm going to shut my eyes and take my finger and come down straight down with my index finger and see if I come down on top of one of those, one of those coins. Well, very seldom do you come right down on top of one of those coins. If you're just got your eyes shut and coming down, but, uh, every once in a while I'd hit a coin. I said, and then I'd say, well, that's the chances of finding gold, just like the chances of finding oil. You're just coming down with your eyes closed and poking a hole in the ground and plaster mining is that way too but of course the difference with placer mining is you don't poke holes you do to start you'll poke holes to test but the proof of the pudding the only way to do it just start at the bottom of the creek and work your way upstream and just clean it out like a dog would lick out a frying pan of grease and get everything and then if you come to a glory hole of gold you'll well there it is well that's the difference i suppose but again if some now i didn't come up with that one Somebody else told me that. The other one, they, I used both of them, though. They'd say, well, how? why is it that gold is 80% of the gold is under, or 20, how was it? Oh, the um, 80% of the gold will be in the bottom 20%, the bottom 20% of the overburden. 80% of the gold will be in the bottom 20% of the overburden in a placer deposit. And uh, they'd say, well, why is that? And I'd say, well, you got a quarter, yeah, you got a dime, quarter better. I'd pour a bowl of Rice Krispies, and then I'd put the quarter in the Rice Krispie bowl, and then I'd bump the bowl or shake it two or three times, and then I'd say, where's the quarter? Well, the quarter's going to be at the bottom. Well, that's why gold is the, 80% of the gold is in the bottom 20% of the gravel, because it's the difference of a specific gravity between the, the sandwich coin, have a little silver in it, and the copper, the silver and copper. And the Rice Krispies, the difference in specific gravity is analogous. So the gold will find its way to the bottom just right away. Well, I went to, to test a rock once, had to spell his name was uh, Dusenberry. Yeah, Dusenberry. <laughs> How could you forget a name like that, old Dusenberry? Well, Dusenberry was an old man that couldn't stop talking, and he had this business where he'd go out in the garage with you and give him a rock, and he'd put it through this this um, this mill that had log chains on it. And it, he'd built the thing himself. He, he was an inventor. He had all these, he bragged about his inventions. He was kind of like the mad scientist. He was an eccentric, 
but he he just sat around thinking about things. He invent all science sorts of mining equipment, how to get gold out of out of this and that. He, some of this stuff was good, some of it was just downright worthless. But he wasn't stupid. He was always creative, and he had this machine that it was a uh, on a wheel, and the wheel was run by an electric motor, and on the on this wheel was attached uh, strips of log chain about three four links a log chain and then he'd put a rock he'd dump a rock in the the funnel that thing and that log chain would be flying around there at supersonic speed and just grind it up to bits well if there was any gold in a rock he'd i suppose it'd get ground out well then he'd take the grindings and he'd put them in this little furnace he had there in a petri dish they're not a petri dish but a I don't know what you call them they're made of clay they were something that could withstand heat when the gold melted. And so he'd put it in there and he'd fire that baby up. He had it on gas. They get about 4,000 degrees in there, if I remember right. And then he'd take that and uh, he'd look at that little that clay crucible. That's the word I was looking for, mm-hmm. crucible. Mm-hmm. He'd look down that crucible and see if there was any gold in there because if there was gold in there, it would gather into one place, a little bead maybe of gold. And then he'd take that crucible with his tongs. It'd be hotter than a pistol. He'd take it over to the deep sink in his garage, and then he'd uh, he'd try to dump that out and wash it out. Well, he did that with my rock, and he went over to the deep sink, and he got the fiddling around and accidentally dumped the the crucible with the gold bead, and it went down the down the drain. Well, the drain, fortunately just went out through the wall of the garage and then dropped down into the sand because we were in Arizona and there wasn't any grass. Everything was sand and he lived out in the desert. And so, uh, he said, Oh, just run out there. And he said, uh, it'll be out there on the ground. So I went outside around the side of the building and I, I looked down the little wet spot there where the water had run out in the, in the sand. And I looked and I didn't see anything. I took my hand and I, kind of raked a little bit off and I still didn't I just kept doing that didn't see anything kept getting deeper and deeper didn't see anything finally I got down there about two and a half inches if I remember right and there was that gold bead I mean within a minute it had to be less than a minute that gold had hit that sand and some the difference is specific gravity see and it had just sunk it was just that heavy by comparison specific gravity is not just uh, how heavy something is it's um it's um, it's density the proportion of its density the density of the material uh to its um how is that well somebody can tell me that remembers i learned this when i was in high school i think but anyway it's it has to do with the density of the material you know the old joke about uh which weighs more a ton of feathers or a ton of rocks and people will say well a ton of rocks well you say no 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 uh, tons a ton, a ton of feathers weighs the same thing as a ton of rocks. Uh, of course, it just takes a lot more volume. See, the specific gravity is different, so it takes more volume of feathers to equal a, a ton of rocks. Well, that's the way gold is compared to sand, and it goes away real quick. Well, that's all I know about how to, I mean, I do know. I do know. I don't always do it because I get caught up in what I know, and, and like Daryl says, I'm more interested in getting my point across and to thinking about how he's seeing it. And if you're more interested in getting your point across and you, all you can see is your point and, and all the facts that go with it, you probably won't communicate your point. Communication is hard. Well, I've learned that. How many times, Roger, maybe you could 
say the same thing. How many times have I got up in front of a group of people, whether it be in a political meeting or a church or a legal meeting, even a jury, and uh, spend half an hour or more, an hour, trying to get a point across, just one point. And then somebody shakes my hand afterwards. They want to say thank you for coming or whatever. Uh, oh, that was a wonderful presentation. Hendricks used to call it the glorification of the worm ceremony when they <laughs> come to you after you speak. <laughs> the glorification of the worm. And then, you, and then the danger of that is, of course, you might begin to believe your own press reports, and they're all lies. You know, people will say nice things to you because they want to be nice, not because it's true. You know, you can say a nice thing or an ugly thing. Maybe you didn't communicate at all, but how many times you didn't communicate at all? But how many times have people said to me, man, that was really something I didn't know. And then they'd tell me what they learned from my presentation. That would be the exact 180 degree opposite of what I was trying to get across. Hmm. Because you're coming up against people's heads are just filled with things. You don't know what's in the other fellow's head. And you don't know whether his, his logic is upside down or backwards or whether his emotions will step in at any given point. No matter how logical he is, his emotions will step in and, and flip it upside down. Boy, to have a clear head, to have a clear head is a blessing from God himself. Brent, and that we all must, yes, go ahead. What is you it? think I've had that experience right. at all over all these years? Oh, oh. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. And that's oh, why but, I want to say, I keep trying to get across to Cody. You start simple, and the best thing to do, we've discussed it on here, what that example I gave was just another way of presenting yeah. the dialectic, you know, that, that, that we yeah. call this money, all right? And so it, it, but you can do it in a number of ways, it's very short and simple. You don't have to go through that. But I'm telling you, that one right there is highly effective, Okay. Uh, if, oh, no but you can just say, are you a citizen of the United States or are you a citizen of the United States of America? That's pretty simple. Yeah. Uh, if yeah, when they ask you, you keep it down with the goats to get it. Yeah. Uh, it, when they ask you if you're a resident, okay. are they asking, are they imputing a geographical or a political definition of that term? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So little things and like that. Brain, that's pretty complicated. Yeah. Well, it's a lot. You're going to get a lot more effectiveness out of that, in my opinion, Cody, than trying to talk to them in Ph.D. words that those people don't understand and can't relate to. I, you know, people, I'm talking about political versus people. geographic. That's a pretty that's a pretty comp. That's a pretty Ph.D. All right. Well, term here, right there. All right. Well, I ask it in this way. When they ask you if you're a resident, what are they asking you? You're a resident of of United States. Well, you you ask them that question, let them pontificate yeah. for you, and you'll know what they know and if they're interested yeah. or not. Yeah. So yeah, that, some good points. I've found that sure. to be over many years, Cody, and I've been down this path a long time. A lot of times when I didn't understand it like I do now, okay, but I knew the basic yeah. questions. I knew there's something wrong, and I had those things down for years. And I, I'm just that's the way you approach this. You gotta let, well, them, let they people don't know <clears throat> care how much you know till they know how much you care. Uh, well, here's something else, else to think about is that, give me just a second, Daryl, 40% of people live paycheck to paycheck, so if we can figure out the best way to appeal to them, and, you know, I'm thinking something along the lines of, 
you know, why are you working so hard to pay interest to, you know, private something along those lines. Private, Listen, these, you know, these, issues, these issues are going to be a lot closer to people's hearts here as we go forward because I'm seeing estimates that 50, per, 50 million people in the United States are going to be experiencing hunger by the end of the year. Jesus. Yeah, they, they, there was an article that a California food bank, and I forget the exact number, they used to give out, I think they said a 1,000 or ten, it was 10 times more. They used to give 1,000 or 10,000 pounds of food a week, and now they're either at 10,000 or 100,000. You know, they even have people in fancy cars, you know, coming in, yep. needing, needing food so many hours in advance. It's just, they're, they're just, so. But what do you expect? If they still got the salon shut down in San Francisco, my God, I can't believe Amen. People there's, haven't revolted already. My God, a lot I, of, you have to be able to work. There's a lot of people that hadn't paid rent in five or six months or their mortgages. What's that? There's a lot of people that haven't paid yeah. rent or their mortgages in five or six months. And some of them, the landlords are yeah, prohibited well, from from keeping them out, and they're still working and able to pay the rent, and they're not paying it. Well, here's, here's a question for Brent is if the Constitution says you have a right to contract, how in the heck can the government say that, you know, they can forgive, you know, the, these uh, payments, the rent payments especially? Oh, oh that's yeah, that's a good question. That's a good question. I want to talk about that. But I wanted to get Daryl in before we left the subject that we were on before. If he, he started to say something. And yes, then he did. I didn't want to get him off track. You there, Daryl? Sure. Go ahead, Daryl. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm here. going to say something? <laughs> Well, you, you know, it'd be, I, I, I was, if, uh, can you hear me? All right, Brent loud and clear. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, uh, the subject matter of, uh, teaching and instructing is dear to my heart. And, uh, I've done a lot of it, uh, and I had to give, uh, in an environment where you had to provide uh, not only uh, academic uh, information, uh, video, uh, written word, uh, code, statute, regulation, and uh, all sorts of information. And then you had to go into the cockpit of an aircraft and apply it. Okay, so uh, a, a lot of this involved giving object lessons and then immediate feedback. Uh, in a complicated, dangerous environment with uh, uh, big consequences. And uh, so th this, this whole subject matter of how you instruct and teach and relate to other people and communicate is very near and dear to my heart. And I find a lot of people are trying to do it and they're incompetent to do it. Uh, it, it doesn't mean that they don't have a good heart. It doesn't mean that they're not trying. It just means that they're incompetent to do it. Uh, I say they're incompetent because you can look at the results. <laughs> and uh, the evidence provides the fact that they're incompetent to do it because they're trying to do it the way they want to do it instead of the way it needs to be done. And uh, so... I have in front of me here, I'm sitting here, You, I know this will surprise you, Brent, Roger, Cody, but I'm sitting here with a book in my lap, and it, it's almost a thousand pages, 
And the title of it is Excellence of the Common Law. Yeah, have you heard of this before, Brent? I've heard of it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm I'm actually here I'm actually here on page six six seven. Uh I don't. I didn't. I didn't want to go to the previous page, <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, the title, the title of this uh, chapter, this this subsection, chapter five, is "Civil Laws, Weapons, Fear, and False Security." All right. Uh, who's the author of this book, Brent? Yeah, Brent's the author. Yeah. Brent's, Brent's Brent. the author. Yours truly. Your, Brent. Yours yeah. truly. Yeah. Yours truly. Um, I highly, I, I'm, I'm doing a plug for you here, Brent. Uh, this book, this book I'm will set you back 50. I'm, I'm a little slow. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> it, this 50. book will cost you 50, 50 debt. 50 debt notes. 80. It'll cost you 50 80 debt it cost me. 80. Daryl, did you get a good deal? Well, <laughs> I, I bought radio. mine before you even. I, I bought mine early. <laughs> he put radio oh, ranch. <laughs> he put the code radio See? ranch in. Cody and got a discount. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah. I got. I got my. I I got my rebate and you got the rebut. So. Uh, uh, so. <laughs> here's my point. Here's my point here to. Uh, because I'm such a, a snarky little guy uh, that uh, <clears throat> well, the point I want to make here is that this is well worth the listening audience um, uh, effort to acquire and actually read. And you're not going to read it in a weekend. It's not light reading, but it will provide a foundation of of uh, of deep understanding of common law versus um, this uh, this creature called civil law, and so if you're going to talk if you're going to use the word politic, uh, I I would be willing to make a wager of uh, substantial debt note sum that. Uh, probably 98 out of a hundred would not relate the word political to anything doing with national sovereignty and your status in it. True. Maybe. And I'm being, I'm being optimistic here. So they we're you're trying to have a political import impute a political conversation with people who are completely fundamentally foundationally, completely illiterate you how stupid do you have to be to have a conversation with illiterates on an academic level that's my question let, let me let me maybe and, this and is you another, have to us if you if you're approaching somebody and say if i ask you what your political status was would you think it was democrat or republican yeah, they probably would. Uh, a hundred, uh, almost a hundred percent would say yes. So, I mean, I, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to lay out the foundational expectations of the very premise of the conversation here. All right. <laughs> well, almost. All right. You, you, you're, you're expecting. You you can't have. You you have to. You can't have this. You can't have this high end conversation with people who don't. 
they're illiterate to the meanings of the words, let, let me, alone yeah, the equivocation and semantics of the words. Cody, let me tell you what okay. you do well, you when you remember. set it up. When you set it up, like with that demonstration, you're qualifying the argument. Okay. You're given the basis to start. Right. You know, a good sale, you like marketing and stuff. A good salesman does what? He asks a lot of questions. He doesn't tell people about what he's got. He asks a lot of questions to find out what they need. Okay? And he tries to not ask a question that he yeah. doesn't know the answer to. And I'll tell you, like the other day with masks, what they're doing is they're utilizing a sales technique where you get people in and you get somebody in a situation and you ask them a whole bunch of minor questions that all are answered with one word, yes. And you ask them four or five different questions, yes. And then the last question is, well, don't you want to own it? Well, they've already told you yeah. yes five times. Oh, well, Roger, I, I have to make a distinction with your example, though. You're talking about selling somebody. Your example is very effective and accurate when it comes to selling a product. Uh, uh, conversely, the object here is to instruct and teach people well, no, and no. not necessarily sell them something. Right. Okay? Well, I wanted to draw Which the is e even harder. The it's even harder. The parallel I was trying, they're getting you on yes, yes, cooperative yeses, and then they're going to say, here, yeah. now it's time for you to take the vaccine. You've been well, compliant up to if, now. Why wouldn't you take it now? But they're if you not, identify your audience, it's probably fair to say, I haven't done any research on this, that most young people are going to be paying interest, whether it's on a mortgage or credit card. So younger people, probably, you know, under 40, 40 or 50, are probably paying interest. So if you can appeal to that, why are we paying so much interest, you, you know, that, you know, you don't get free product for your business. I don't get, if I'm a butcher shop or I'm a grocer, I don't get free product like the banks do, you know, basically for nothing to carve up and, and sell. And... You know, but like, anyway, that's my thought on it. They not, they not even, they not only get free product, they get you to pay them to take it. Right. Well, <laughs> yeah. I, I just, I just wanted to put a plug in for Brent and his book. And, uh, it's, uh, it's a, it's a really good book and, uh, you say, everybody here would benefit. You say, so. you know, Cody, you talk about the Federal Reserve. Here's what they're really doing with the monetary system. They're monetizing collateral. And um, virtually all collateral is depreciating, and yet what you bought it with is escalating on a compound interest schedule. Yeah, it's worse than that. Have you guys heard? Of, there was This is something I hadn't, I hadn't thought of until I heard this talk. Uh about, okay, when you have inflation, say you've got a piece of property, you buy it at a certain price, well, you only pay on the capital gains. But when you have an inflationary monetary system, you're going to, your, your property, when you sell it, may have been, you know, be worth more of the Federal Reserve notes, but you can't buy any more with it, but yet you have to pay that capital gains on the gain, but yet the money that you supposedly made was actually worth less because they were, the whole talk that they were saying is that they were talking about trying to make a loss so that you would not have to pay capital gains uh, in a, if the money had been inflated, uh, you know, it wasn't worth, was worth less than, you know, there wasn't any real true uh, value increase. And that's something I hadn't really thought of. Let when you're inflating the monetary system, 
you're still paying a capital gain, even though the buying power is sure. less. And that's, that's, right. that's another form of that. They, it's the, it's the, it's heads they win and tails you lose. Okay. Look at the story on the, yeah. the dialectic in Germany out of the hyperinflation of the Weimar Republic. And I heard the story about a young guy that worked at one, like Baden-Baden or one of those real fancy five-star European spas over there that they have where a lot of these elites yeah. go to try and rid themselves a little of the subconscious guilt they carry, I hear, you know. And this was in those days, and one guy was a bellhop, and he had a real uh, steady customer that he'd had for some time, and the customer visited the spa, and they tipped him a gold coin. And he went home, and he put it in the drawer, and he forgot about it. And the hyperinflation went through Germany, and he remembered the coin or found it, however, stumbled on it, and he took the coin and went back and bought the spa. Oh, wow. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gold, gold goes to about $30,000, $40,000. Yeah, you'll be able to do it, too. <laughs> you know? So, uh, you know, what gold does is it protects your purchasing power against all these fluctuations, yep. situations, shenanigans, fraudulent uh, maneuvers, etc., against the people that have, I really, uh, since time immemorial, been trying to rob and yep. steal you and make you a slave and think they've got a damn right to do so. Them. That's the absolute urinator of the whole thing is they think they've got a right to do that. Yeah, because you're the cattle, the insulting term yeah. goyim. Well, no, you're, you're the cattle. Well, the, look yeah. at the dialectic, because they're the gods, self-made, self-appointed, thank you. Yeah. I like Brent's, uh, the mining law part of Brent's book. There, anybody that's in natural resources, that's a good, good read in it. And, you know, explains... I don't know, maybe Brent can explain it better, but basically, you know, the land is the people's to use, and whoever finds it first got to keep it kind of thing. Whoever makes use of the minerals got to keep it. Herbert, Herbert Hoover, Herbert Hoover, him and his wife, his wife's name was Lou, Lou Hoover. He met her in a geology lab in Stanford University. He himself was from Central central uh, Iowa. He grew up in a Quaker community. Really? His parents, I think, died. He ended up, yeah, he ended up living, oh yeah, he, he grew up in a Quaker community. I forget the name of little towns, right right in the middle of Iowa. He ended up though, living with an uncle, I believe, because he kind of an orphan that way. And he, he went out to the state of Washington, which in those days was way out in the middle of nowhere, of course. That was on the edge of the world. But then he he was a sharp fella. And he, he saw an ad in a magazine and or something said something about could apply to go to Stanford. It was maybe it was a new school then. I don't know. Wasn't that well? It, it wasn't old. We got into Stanford, and he met his wife. And his wife had learned Latin. I don't know where she went to school. It was unusual that a woman even be in a geology lab. I mean, I, I was a geology major when I was in school, and we didn't have any girls in geology. None. That's how much things have changed. That was a man's realm, and. There were no girls in that department. Well, I, it surprised me that Lou Hoover, that was back in the, uh, well, uh, 120 years ago. Anyway, she was there, and she had learned Latin. I think she'd gone to a girl's school where folks had money. Herbert didn't have money growing up. Herbert Hoover is the one that said, my, my Social Security, when Social Security came out, he said, uh, 
my social security is in the root cellar. It's in the root cellar. That's where he said a man's social security ought to be. Well, I get what he was saying. He was always promoting that idea, but he ended up with his wife. He had uh, She knew Latin, and he knew mining engineering real well and geology, so they teamed up together. I don't think she was a geologist. Maybe she was just taking a lab class or something, but they teamed up together, and there was a the, the oldest or the first, really, treatise in the Western world on mining engineering. The author was a fellow by the name of Agricola. Agricola, and he was up in Saxony in Germany. And he had written this thing in Latin a few hundred years ago, or 500 years ago, about maybe more like about 500, closer to six maybe. And uh, never been translated into English, so they got together and they translated the book into English, and it's called Agricola, Agricola's Mining uh, Engineering uh, Treatise. And big, thick book, and had diagrams in it on how to do this, that, and the other. Well, anyway, he did the whole thing, and he, but he wrote in the beginning of the book, he said, you can always tell how free a country or a people is by discovering who has initial title in minerals. Who has initial title in minerals? And you, you and I have talked about this, Roger, and you've made the point down there in South America, the government has initial title in minerals. 100%. And uh, here, yeah, well, that's the law of the city. It's that way, and everywhere the Roman law is, that's the law. You go to Spain, where they used to mine silver, and that's what you find. Uh, the government just owns all the minerals. Well, in America, we followed the common law principle, and finally then it was caught. Congress actually codified it later, but it was already the law, called the Mining Law of 1872, and it said anybody that wants minerals, come and get them. Uh, it belongs to the, the first taker. And that's uh, an important, exceedingly controlling principle of law. You know, every piece of property in a common law country, every piece of property, everything from your pencil and your toothbrush to your 1,000-acre ranch or farm, whatever it is, your car, your truck, your house, your clothing, every item of property, every molecule, every molecule, every atom, if it's gold, in the, in the world uh, has an owner. That's what our law says, every one. You just, it, sometimes it's, hard to figure out who the owner is. That's why we go to court sometimes to, to quiet title and say, well, this fellow's the owner of this, that, or that, this other thing. Well, but everything has an owner. There's nothing out there that is not owned, and that goes for minerals in the ground, down deep. Whether it's a migrating mineral like oil, that's a migrating mineral. It's on the move. It's like like wildlife, on your like a coon cat or a, a fox or a possum. They're on the move, but they're still, everybody owns them. Everybody has a right to them. It's not everybody. Somebody does, and you have to figure out, in some cases, who. Fish. You know, people go to law school, one of the earliest things they, well, I don't know what they do now, but they read cases about men that are casting their nets in the ocean, and uh, one fella cast his net, another fella cast his net, and capture the fish. He's, he's within this large net this other fellow's setting, and another small boat goes inside that net and throws a net and captures all the fish inside this other fellow's big net, and the question is, who owns the fish? Well, at common law, there's a different answer than at, at the law of the city, the law of the land, and the law of the city are always different because the law of the land, or the law of the city, rather, the law of the city, the government, the state, the final arbiter of right and wrong, the God, even though they don't call him that in every case, he owns it all. 
but in America, we follow the mining law of 1872 on federal land and on state land, of course. Every state has its common law principles that it uses to, disc- to say who owns minerals. Uh, you can divide in a common law country, you can divide the mineral rights up. You can uh, divide it up say, well, this fellow owns the surface rights of this parcel of real estate, and this fellow owns the water rights, and this fellow owns the limestone rights, and this fellow owns the timber rights, and this fellow owns the hunting rights, and this fellow owns the... You can divide it up any way you want it. That's not true in the rest of the world. Either own the land or you don't, fundamentally. Unless, uh, and if you own it, you own everything. Or no, if you purchased it, you may own everything in it, but you have to probably pay rental fee or royalty to the government. See... This is true in some of the mining claims, for instance, on state land. We were on federal land, but our federal claims were up against state land. And on the state land, if you mine that, you paid a royalty. Well, that isn't exactly a common law tradition. But on the federal land, you didn't pay any royalty. If you found gold, it was yours. Mining law of 1872 codified codified the, common, the, the, the miner's law. We call it the miner's law, which is a universal law. And that's what that section of the book is about, is how common law arises naturally among men. That's what that section is about, that section in that book, Excellent the Common Law, about mining law, the mining law of 1872 being an example. But everywhere in the world, whether you're in Spain, in the silver mines, or you're in, in Cornwall and the, and the British island, in the tin mines, the tin binders, or whether you were in Mexico or South America or California or Florida or the the lead fields of northern Illinois and, and southern uh, Missouri, no matter where you went, the, the, when Americans came yeah. there and there was no government, they formed their own, they formed the, well, they, they put in place courts and they followed the mining laws. They didn't, they weren't educated men. They didn't go research it. It just arose naturally. And it's, it's the way the common I, law works among men. Somebody was going to say something. Go ahead. Yeah. How does that tie back into the Bible when you have a, that common law, that style of a tradition versus the law of the city. Is it well, because here, God said to do it that way? Or? Well, I wanted to talk about the right to contract a while ago. You said that, but we'll get, I want to, I want to respond to that if I can. Now that was the, the, the law, God's Bible, God's Bible is his, as Blackstone tells us, he's right. That's what this phrase means. The laws of nature is God. The laws of nature's God of our Declaration of 76 is the Bible. That's what that means, as uh, Blackstone goes on to call it revealed religion. What is religion? That's your response back to your lawgiver, re-laguerre. It's a good thing. could be a false lawgiver, but it's a good thing if you respond back to the true lawgiver and do what he wants you to do. That's religion. Uh, Religion is not juxtaposed against relationship. No, your religion is your relationship with your God, your lawgiver, and hope is the right one. Your response back to him, that's religion. It's a good thing. True and undefiled religion, says James in the Bible. He uses that word. It's a good word, but the the Bible, the final arbiter of right and wrong, the specific, specific revelation. Blackstone also calls the Bible specific. Well, it is specific. We're using words here. God condescends to our the tongues of men, particularly three of them, Hebrew, Koine Greek, and Aramaic. He uses those three to have the Bible put to writing so we can analyze it and look at it closely. It doesn't change. That's the nice thing about recording the tongues of men. Well, he drops that inerrant, inerrant 
set of writs, that, those writings, 66 of them, he drops that into a context that we today call our common law. Uh, before that, before it was called the common law, Magna Carta, it was called law of the land. Before that, it was called the laws of Edward the Confessor. Before that, the laws of King Alfred the Great. Before that, it was called the multi-laws. And the names, oh, well, well, and during all that time, up until not that many centuries ago, it was called the Volkreicht, the Volkreicht, which is the folk's right, which means the folk's duty or the responsibility of the folk or the folk. That's the militia. That's the militia. That's the males. Uh, we, the people, that's the males. That's the militia. That's the bulk. That's what the Bible says. The people, my people, the people. That always refers to that armed band of men. And in most cases, it refers to the armed uh, the militia of the 12 several tribes of Israel, the men, not the women. And God drops all that that written revelation into a context of common law and called by different names through the centuries. And we see that clearly. We see that clearly. Uh, and the common law is not the end result standards. The common law is the processes that we are to use to arrive to find. As we say at common law, we find our findings. We don't make law. We find it. We find the end result standard that God wants in any particular instance by following his course a process, the course of our common law. We call it due process. Our common law is due process. It doesn't include due process. That's what it is. Because our common law is our responsibility. That's what God has given us to do. He declares the end result standards, for instance, do not covet, lie, steal, commit adultery, or murder. That's the substance of the law. Whatever you do, you don't want to you don't want, you want to make sure you don't do that. God has jurisdiction. Our lawgiver, the maker of all things, has exclusive jurisdiction. He didn't share it with anybody else to declare right and wrong in the final analysis. And it's our job. He has given us the responsibility as his people, the responsibility of discernment, discerning fair play, and the process that will get us in individual instances, individual instances, to the end result standard that he has declared. That's what, that's what our law is made up of, two parts. The process, that's our responsibility, and the result, that's his responsibility. Does the Bible say that? Yes, it says, do not be afraid of the face of any man. It says this to the, the jurors and the other people that make decisions. That's all of us. The mark of a free man is he makes decisions. He exercises discernment. And he says, God says, do not be afraid of the face of any man, rich or poor, strong or weak, in judgment. Don't be afraid of them. Because the judgment, the end result, the din, or we say Dan, Dan, like Daniel, Dan, the end result standard, belongs to who? The Lord. Yahuha. Yahuha. His name. Some people say Yahweh, but it has to have three syllables. can't just have two. It's written. But that's his responsibility. That's why we say at common law, even yet today, the findings of the jury are. The findings of the court are. They don't say that in the rest of the world. They say the law is. This is what the government says, and that's it. And we're facing that now. As these governors are saying, that's it. What mm -hmm. I say is law. There is no appeal for my decree to put a diaper on your head and look like a goofball follow my directions 
Do what I say. Brent? No, 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 no. Yeah, go ahead. Can I inject what happened this yeah. week over in the D.C. circuit? I sent you the link on that story Please. when it popped up the other day. I, I don't know if you got around to reading what was it. Roger? On this General Flynn case. No, fiasco. I didn't. Go ahead. Okay. On the Flynn oh, fiasco. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Okay. Well, the... The process is, you know, they've got Flynn. They're trying to uh, fillet him publicly on false charges that didn't even exist. He's got a district court judge named Sullivan that when the DOJ pulls the charges, Sullivan goes and pulls a retired judge to come in and act as the prosecutor to continue to prosecute General Flynn. That gets appealed up to the D.C. Circuit, oh, and they uh, they they said yeah. I don't remember what the first decision was, but it was against Sullivan, and he went back and requested an in bank hearing, which they just had, and the vote was eight to two on letting Sullivan go ahead and try Flynn and override his bosses at the DOJ, which have taken the whole thing off the table. Yeah. I mean, yeah. no, come that's on. normal. That's, and that's the that's called abuse of process, abuse of process. See, the process belongs to our responsibility as men. That's abuse of process. Yes, it when is. they when they uh, when I appealed my case, when I appealed my case, uh, they brought in a retired United States Supreme Court judge to sit on the three judge appellate panel to, to hear the case so that the other the Supreme Court would be afraid to overturn a retired Supreme Court judge. I mean, it's all. It's all uh, playing personalities yep. and abuse of process. Yep. That's normal. And that's why, but that is why we have this long set, this long process, because we hope in the process somebody will say, wait a minute, this is not fair. And sometimes that happens, by the way. That's why the process is there, and that's why it's drug out. It's drug out for a reason, because men are, and women are, are as crooked as the dog's hind leg. All of us, to varying degrees, are filled with bias, and some of it is downright ugly. And so God has said to us, follow my process. Go ahead. I'm waiting for somebody to step up and say Kamala Harris isn't a natural-born citizen. She ain't qualified for either of us. I'm waiting to do that, too. That's Deuteronomy chapter 17. Oh, by the way, Cody, by the way, Cody, you ask, uh, does the Bible talk about uh, the process is the way I took the question. And of course it does. That's all it, it's all, every word is stock full of the idea that process is our responsibility. And I like to point to Psalm 19 to, to, uh, point that out. But, um, and I hope to do that when we get to, uh, to Everton in Missouri. I want to make a big deal about that. There, there, uh, oh, there's a lot here. Let's yeah, use man. that transition right there because that's one of the things I wanted to talk about. Segway is the right word because I was going to say you're going to have plenty of opportunity to get up in front of the whole world here shortly on a live stream that's being recorded. A lot of people will be watching and a trial as the defense attorney of the Constitution. Would you like to illuminate people that don't yeah. know about this? We talked about it at length six months ago, and then it got COVID shelved, and it's back. Yeah. Yeah, that's on the 19th of this month in Everton, Missouri. You can go to the website, commonlawyer.com, at the events button. I've got some particulars there, and there's a link you can click on there. It'll take you to the, the website devoted to the, to the, the trial. Now, Ted Wyland and I were on Patriot Soapbox 
Thursday together. And I said, Ted, let's, let's, let's talk. And get on here, and we'll talk about uh, who you are and why you're doing what you're doing. And, and we did. And we didn't, um, we didn't debate the case there. I told Ted, I said, this isn't about, well, we'll save that for the Everton. What I want people to know now is who you are and why you're doing what you're doing and where you come from. And Ted was a bull rider. And um, a younger fella, you got to be younger to do stupid stuff like that. I said to him, <laughs> "What would have possessed a man to want to do something like that?" Well, I really knew the answer. And I, boys are that way. They want to do stuff that's exciting and dangerous, and they don't even know how dangerous it is. But he did that, and uh, but he made the point that that's not where he got his worst injuries. He's got his worst injuries riding in a pickup truck, sitting in the middle. Didn't ride, he wasn't riding shotgun. He was sitting in the middle where that gear shift comes up, oh. a Ford pickup truck, and they were going to Estes Park, Colorado for a big rodeo, and that was his first professional rodeo. And they got into a head-on crash, killed two people in the other car, messed up him of the three in the pickup truck, or maybe there were four sitting there, too many, messed him up worse than anybody. It really messed him up. He's fortunate he lived through it, but... Uh, after that, his life changed, and, uh, of course, that set him back. His leg was tore up and bent backwards, and and uh, he did write a little more after that, he said. Well, that was an interesting story. I'm glad he told Again, telling the story. I wanted him mm-hmm. to, to tell the story about his bull riding and his, how he really got injured and why he quit riding bulls, and then what happened next. And what happened next was he became an avid student of the Bible. That's what happened next, and and he's come to conclusions that I disagree with. We talked yesterday about... And we're going to, well, this is what it's going to come to. Here is it, Ted. Here it is. Ted Wyland believes the Bible, believes it's without error. He's come to that conclusion. He studies it hard, intensely, has been for decades. I do the same thing. I believe the Bible is true. I studied it hard for decades, intensely, and I still am. I hope to, God allows me. I'll never stop. Two men have similar point of views about the Bible, about law. How is it we come to different conclusions? Well, the reason is because he starts with a set of premises I don't agree with. That's what it comes down to. He starts with a set of premises, things he assumes that he believes are true, but they aren't. And I start then with another set of premises, so I come to a different conclusion fundamentally. That's the difference. That's why men who have the same set of facts will come to different conclusions, because they start from the wrong place. We went yesterday to the the story, not the parable. It's not a parable. It's called the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's not a parable. It's a, a narrative about the man, a certain man, a real man that went from uh, Jerusalem down to Jericho and he got caught. He got caught by brigands. They beat him half to death, left him for dead, took everything he had. He was lying there on the edge of the road. Remember in that narrative, it says a certain lawyer stood up, a certain lawyer, not, again, this is the, the formula, the grammatical and vocabulary formula for a true story. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, a certain lawyer stood up, all this stuff really happened, and said to Jesus, uh, how do I inherit eternal life? And he said, well, you know the law, tell me. Well, he told him, he said, well, this do and you'll live. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Well, do that. Jesus Christ never said God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He never said, here's the gospel. Jesus died for your sins. I died for you. He never said that. Why didn't he say it? Because he knew that the only way a fellow can get saved from hell 
is first to realize he is not safe from hell. And the only way you can get a fellow to realize he's not safe from hell is to throw him on the law. Throw him on the law. If he's so unpersuadable and dense to see that he's bound for hell, that he's broken God's law and the remedy and the, the, the penalty is eternal death, he's not going to accept the remedy unless he knows he's doomed. So Jesus Christ, as the Puritans did, our forebears, as the Scotch-Irish Presbyterians did, they thundered against men. And people said, oh, he's just preaching hell and brimstone. Why didn't he say something about the love of Jesus? Because you people will never, never, never accept the remedy of Jesus Christ until they accept that they're doomed. They're utterly doomed. That's the message of the God. Well, that's the way Jesus Christ approached people always. And he said, well, he threw that fellow on the law. Well, that fellow was too blind to see it, too dense. That lawyer, he was a lawyer. And he said, well, okay, well, seeking to justify himself, it says, he said, well, who is my neighbor? Now, is there anything wrong just standing alone with somebody asking, if they read a legal text, what the words mean? No. Is there anything wrong with asking who your neighbor is when you read the Bible and it says you must love your neighbor as yourself? No, there's everything right about knowing who your neighbor is. As a matter of fact, if you don't know who your neighbor is, you're, a, <laughs> you're not going to be able to love him. Your neighbor is not everybody. You say that up front. The Bible is it pounds that home from one end to the other. But that is not to take away from what Jesus Christ was trying to say to this fellow. This fellow was not this fellow wanted to know who his, who his neighbor was, not because he really wanted to understand. He wanted to know who his neighbor was, the Bible says there, because he wanted to justify himself. Justify himself. You can't justify yourself. You can't justify yourself. You can't make yourself look good. You can try and try and try. And in God's eyes, in God's eyes, you'll always look evil. Why? Because that's what you are. Without Jesus Christ, you, your righteousness, as the Bible says, is nothing but filthy, bloody minstrel rags, says Isaiah. All our righteousness is as filthy rags, the King James says. Well, that word there means filthy, bloody, used minstrel rags. Used up, dead blood, no good, nothing but putrid, nothing but bacteria gathering blood. That's your righteousness. Well, if that's true, and it is, of course, Paul says there is none good, no, not one, all have gone out of their ways. The poison of asps is under their lips, Romans chapter 1. Well, he tried to point this out to this fellow, but this fellow was not persuadable because God had not made him persuadable. So he sought to justify himself. Nothing wrong with asking the question, but he asked it for the wrong reason, see. Who is my neighbor? Did Jesus answer his question? No, he never, ever, ever answered that question in that whole narrative. He told him the story of the, of the, of the, of the man, the merchant, going down to Jerusalem and Jericho, fell among brigands. They beat him, left him for dead, beat him, beat him up fierce, wounded him, left him for dead, naked, took his clothes, stripped stripped his body, and just left him on the side of the road. Along came a priest, a Jewish Babylonian priest, Jewish Babylonianism, Judiac. He passed by on the other side. Then came the Levite. He's of the same crowd. He passed by on the other side, thought he was dead. As far as they knew, he was dead, and they weren't to get near dead bodies. Is there something wrong with that? No. 
law of God says don't go near dead bodies. But the Samaritan, the half-breed, he was a half-breed, hated the Israelites, hated him. He was half-Israelite. He was a Samaritan, as much as Americans used to hate half-breed white folk and Indians, half-breed Indians. They were looked down upon very much. (laughs) Well, that's the way it was with the Samaritans. And if you look close, you'll discover in the gospel records, that's what they accused Jesus Christ of being. They accused him of being a woods colt. I was talking about this yesterday. There's a difference at home where I'm from between a bastard and a woods colt. A bastard is a term of legal art at common law. That's where you know who your parents are, but you were conceived before they were officially, by by ceremony, joined together in marriage. Mm -hmm. That's called a bastard. But a woods colt's different. We had a lot of woods colts around home. My dad used to say that. Well, so-and-so, way I get it, he's a woods colt. What does that mean? That means he's like the mare that was run off into the woods, and she comes back. And, and full, she, she, she's pregnant, and you don't know who the stud is. Well, that's what a woods colt is. They used to say that, what's the definition of mass confusion? We go to some of these places in the, in the inner city, and the definition of mass confusion is Father's Day. Right. But people don't know who their fathers are anymore. Well, that's what a woods colt is, and that's what they accuse Jesus Christ of being, more specifically, the product of a Samaritan woman who was a whore and a Roman legionnaire, a Roman soldier. They said that's who he is. By the way, they still say things like that about him. They don't tell the rest of the world that, but in their writings, and they believe it, and they talk about it among themselves, Jesus Christ. Yep. Jesus Christ is a is a bastard or a woods colt, to make it even worse, and he is a half-breed. And he's up to his neck, as we speak right now, they say, in boiling human feces. That's what they say about him. There's no, there's no connection between Babylonian Judaism and the truth. They hate God's people. And uh, like Romanism, I tell people, listen, the Pope has declared me anathema. That means I'm doomed to hell and there's no getting out of it. Well, then why would I, why, and I'm not, why would I promote them in any way? No, I don't. They're organized pedophilia. I hate pedophiles. I say it publicly. I'm no part of that. And I denounce it entirely. And Babylonian Judaism is the same way. Uh, They denounce Jesus Christ. They denounce him. That's blasphemous. So does Islam, by the way. Islam says Jesus Christ is the second greatest prophet. That's blasphemy. People say, oh, but they acknowledge he's a prophet. No, no, no. That's blasphemous. That demeans him. And that's not to be tolerated. Well, this Samaritan comes along, pours wine and oil into the wounds of this man that they thought was dead. Pours wine. Wine has uh, alcohol in it, of course. That helps clean things out, kills bacteria. And then oil. It doesn't say what kind in the text there, but probably something that was expensive, like frankincense. You know, frankincense, I've used that stuff. You, get a little, you can buy little bottles of it. It costs yeah. quite a bit, but yeah. if you just use a drop at a time, you can use it to, to heal wounds. I've used it. It's good stuff. That's probably the kind of thing he dumped into this fellow's wounds. He spent money on him. And then he got him up on his beast of burden. Doesn't say it's a jenny or a jackass, but this says the word means beast of burden. And probably could have been a, a jenny or a jack and took him to the local inn, turned him over and said, let this man just rest here. His wounds are bad. And uh, I gave him some money, 
He said, when I come back, I'll see if I owe you any more. Then Jesus Christ said to this fellow who sought to justify himself, said, uh, he didn't say, he didn't answer his question. He just flipped the question around the other way. And he said, he didn't say, who is my neighbor? He said, who is neighbor to him that fell among thieves? Not who is my neighbor, but who is neighborly to him? Well, who is the Samaritan? The Samaritan is uh, Jesus Christ. Well, he didn't want to say it. He had him cornered, the lawyer. He had the lawyer cornered. And what he was saying to this lawyer is, you're an idiot. You ought to know better. You ought to know that the important thing is the question, not the answer. Because if you don't get the right question, you don't even have a shot at the right answer. It's not right. there. Right. You've got to ask the right question. You're asking the wrong question. You're asking to justify yourself, who your neighbor is, when the right question is, who is neighbor to you? Who's neighborly to you? Of course, the answer was the Samaritan. He, he, didn't even, he couldn't bring himself to say the Samaritan, the, the half-breed. So he said, he who had mercy on him. Listen, the key to life, the number one key to life is not to find out who your neighbor is. That's not the first. That's a good thing to do. Find out who your neighbor is and be kind to him. But that's really not what God's after. What he's after first is to know who has been neighborly to you and be kind to him. I sat down and made a list once I saw that. I made a list of who has helped me in life, who has been good to me, who has made it possible for me to do what I've done, and everything I have I've received from somewhere else. And God has used other men and other women to bring it into my life. It's not from me. I'm not the one that made it happen, whether it be my education or just my sustenance. It's not. I, I'm not responsible for it, and I can't take credit for it. I've got to give credit to somebody else. And, and God says, when people are good to you, treat them like friends. Don't go looking for somebody to be good to. You don't have to go look. They're all around you, the people that have taken care of you and Finally, my list got so long, I just gave up. And I said, here's what Jesus Christ wants me to do. He wants me to do, be good to those folk, be good to those folk as I can. They're good to me. But Jesus Christ is saying, listen, the first thing you've got to figure out is, who has been good to you? Who has saw you as dead in trespasses and sin, like, like the man along the road that was beaten half, and everybody thought he was dead? Who saw you as dead in trespasses and sins, nothing good in you, and then came and picked you up and safened you? Who did that? Well, he did. And if you're not willing to recognize that, nothing else in life matters, period. End of paragraph, end of sentence, the whole caboodle, nothing matters. That's what Jesus Christ was saying to that lawyer, but that lawyer did not know what question to ask. The question he was wanting to ask was, 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 focused on how can I justify myself when Jesus Christ was saying to you ask the right question, you'll ask who is justifying you because somebody has to justify the evil man. That's you. How do you, who is that? That it is, as Luther said, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be Christ Jesus. It is he Lord Sabaoth, his name from age to age, the same. And he must win the battle him, not me. He's going to fight for me. He has fought for me. He's already, as a matter of fact, he's already won the battle. He won it. I don't fight for victory. I fight in victory. I'm just doing the cleanup job. I'm following along Amen. behind, Amen. wiping, uh, finishing off whoever he's already, whoever he's already stopped. It's all over, all over, but the crying for the other side. He won the battle. I'm on the winning side. I don't do it of myself. 
I must recognize, and that's what that that so-called parable is all about. It's not about, I want to say this yesterday, not one parable that Jesus Christ ever taught, not one parable or one story or one analogy he ever used taught a moral lesson. Not one. If there was a moral lesson to it, it was secondary. And that's the truth with this one, too. And I'm not the first guy to ever say that. There have been Bible interpreters through the centuries have pointed that out because when you get a look at all these stories and these parables, every one of them went to show fundamentally who he is, not what you are to do to justify yourself. Because you can't do that. He does that. But every one of them went to show his identity, and that's what he came to testify to was who he is, because if he is who he says he is, then the only thing left for us to do to say, like Paul the Apostle, when he knocked him out of the saddle, I mean, literally, he was in a saddle, he knocked him out on the ground. And the only thing left for us to say is, if he is who he is, what would thou have me do? You know, Paul the Apostle, when he got knocked out of the saddle on the road to Damascus, Acts chapter 9, he said, who, 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 he's blind, who, who art thou? He was well, put it, to put it bluntly, I would be surprised if he didn't have to change his drawers after that experience because he was scared out of body, out of his wits. And the text makes that clear. And his first question, who are you? Well, once this, this, this person, Jesus Christ, described to him who he was, he only had one response. What would thou have me do? What, what, what do you want me to do? Just tell me. Just tell me. Listen, when God gets a man down, so far down, he, his face is in the dirt. And the only sight he has is to look up from the dirt. And he sees Jesus Christ. <laughs> Wesley put it well. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, fast bound I was in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, I rose, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and then followed thee. But what would thou have me do? That's the only question that is sensible. Paul the Apostle says the same thing, Romans chapter 11, moving into chapter 12, all these things being true in the first 11 chapters of Romans. What is the only reasonable thing to do? That's what he says. And he says, what is it? Offer your body, your physical body, as a living, not a dead. Don't kill yourself and burn yourself on a pile of wood like a a dead sacrifice. No, a living sacrifice. Just offer your body. Here I am. I'm alive. Do with me. What would thou have me do? Not to justify yourself, but to find peace and, and, and tranquility and fulfillment in this life. There is one thing that I didn't address that Cody brought up, and that was the right to contract. I'd like to say something about that, if I may, Roger. Is this a good time? Roll on, Roll brother. that talk. Roll on. Okay. Well, people say, well, the, the Constitution guarantees the right to contract. Well, it does. It does in this sense that it says that no state government, no state government, that's essentially what it means when it talks about the legislature has, of the states have not the power, but the authority to impair any obligation to contract. No state government ultimately is the way that's been understood. They can't, no legislation can be passed that impairs freedom of contract. That's powerful. But what about the 
general government in Washington, D.C.? Does it have the power or the authority under the Constitution to impair obligation of contract? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Why is that? Because the federal courts under the Constitution have the exclusive, exclusive jurisdiction of bankruptcy. What is bankruptcy? Bankruptcy is the impairing or the doing away entirely with the obligation of contract. Federal courts don't care much about contracts, been my experience. Not only in the bankruptcy courts, of course, I understand bankruptcy, and that has to be, and that's in the federal courts. The reason for that was because if it were in the state courts, the state courts would habitually, would habitually, <laughs> um, would habitually use bankruptcy to allow its own citizens and residents to stiff arm people they've contracted with from other states. That's what that would do. That would impair interstate commerce, in other words. See, this whole thing about interstate commerce, you see that coming out of the woodwork all over the Constitution. It's not just in the interstate commerce clause. But bankruptcy, the reason uh, uh, bankruptcy is exclusive federal jurisdiction is because uh, the states, if the states have it, they would destroy interstate commerce. I think that is axiomatic if anybody's read history and knows. And that's why we also have federal courts and diversity jurisdiction, because if you go into a state court and a fella drags you into state court and he lives there and you don't, you live in another state. And I've had this happen to me, by the way. I've been in state courts in other states. No, they aren't friendly to foreigners. I'm a foreigner if I'm not from the state of Washington. I've been in the state of Washington courts and the appellate courts, and my client got screwed in the state of Washington out of $300,000. Bank of America, I don't mind saying it, it's all public record. Bank of America stole $300,000 from him. I went, <laughs> amazing, how can this be? I went to the headquarters of Bank of America. They have a big building downtown Seattle, biggest skyscraper in town, of Bank course. of America. That's where I argued the case in the appellate courts. Now, it didn't help. But if I'd have been in federal court, I'd probably gotten a better shake. But how, that, but, how do they steal uh, it? Uh, what, what's called in law, they call it uh, apparent authority. Apparent authority. And for example, well, that just means under color of law. Yep. A, uh, a false, false flag. All those are synonyms. What it was was uh, if you walk into a bank, for example, Cody, you walk into a bank, and uh, you walk up to the teller's booth, and, and there's somebody standing there, and they've got a guy's got a tie on, he's got a nice haircut, and he looks clean, squared away, and, and uh, you give him a thousand dollars to deposit. He says thank you. He goes through the motions. He does everything, and and, he, and then he takes that thousand dollars and sticks it in his pocket. Did he have authority to stick it in his pocket? No, he has authority to stick it in your account. But if you go in and uh, somebody. Let's say you go in and the person standing behind the counter is the janitor, but looks like a teller, acts like a teller, acts like they know what they're doing. You give them $1,000 and the janitor takes the money and, and walks away, or whoever it is. That's called, that, that's called color of authority. Why do I say that? Apparent authority. Why do I say that? Well, because any onlooker looks like they have authority as a teller. They're standing in the teller's place. They've got looks of a teller. Well, that's what happened in this case, but the bank has a responsibility to never let that happen. See, And if that does happen, if that does happen, then the bank is supposed to make it good. Well, that didn't happen in our case. And the reason, well, a lot of the reason was because we were from out of state. Well, they said to themselves, this fellow's not going to bank here anymore. We don't care about him. But Bank of America, they're a big part of our economy. We're going to uphold them. And by the way, that's true of all banks. 
If you're going up against, I've gone up against a bank in two big cases. If you go up against a bank, your chances are slim to nothing, like an ice ball or a snowball in hell. They're very slim. What? Why is that? What's your? Why, well, I tell you what, I want to say why that is, and then, I, then I'll sure. Start. That's because banks have a lock on everything, including the state legislatures and the congressmen. So do insurance companies. And everything is bent in their direction. They run the governments. Back to you, Cody. Well, how do you keep that from happening? How, why 300000 He didn't get a receipt when he did that, or they literally stole it out of the account? What was a little more detail to that? Oh, well, there's a lot of detail to it. They stole it out of the account, right? It's just that simple. You know, stealing is a simple thing. Either you stole or you didn't. Either you swiped the money or you didn't. And he who takes what isn't his and is supposed to pay the price or he might go to prison, as we used to say in Sunday school. Very simple. Thou shalt not steal. And the, in the final analysis, they just took his stuff. Uh, we, we, t- we repeat here Roger's phrase. The, the, the evil empire, the law of the city just has one policy. Kick your butt and take your stuff. Well, sometimes they don't even have to kick your butt. They just take your stuff. <laughs> they can get there away was with a, it. Whatever's easy. Self, yeah, go ahead. Self-help remedies. There was a creative one one time where they said, <laughs> they said a guy put a lock, something that looked like a lockbox in front of an ATM and put out of order on the ATM. And I guess convince yeah. some people to to put to put envelopes full of money in this in this box. So that, oh, yeah. that was kind of the scam on that situation. But I don't know. Well, <laughs> think about think about put people put a hundred two hundred thousand dollars in the bank, and they think the bank can't steal that money. No, the bank can steal that money. By the way, when you put your money in a bank, keep in mind it's no longer your money. That's so right. you turn title over to the bank under a con under a contract that they provide certain services and sometimes you get it back depending upon the circuit but as long as it's in the bank title and possession and title that means ownership legal title is passed to the bank so what does that mean that means this if the bank fails or says it fails but really didn't either case uh, and you don't you don't get your money what recourse do you have well uh oh the only recourse you have is under contract and if they're under contract to you and they are uh um, it's no it's no crime in America to break your promise. What is a contract? Well, it's a set of promises. That's all. That's what it is fundamentally. You they promised you to do certain things. They break their promise. What recourse do you have? It's not no. There's no crime they've committed, so you can sue them, and you probably won't win that one either. I'm telling you, this happened during the depression. It, it always amazed me. I go into these federal courthouses around the country. Most of them built back in the yep. late 1930s. And they're made of solid brass all over. Brass everywhere. Big steel. No expense was spared to build those buildings during the Depression. Where did they get that money? Marble floors, marble walls, all that. Oh, marble. Beautiful. Yeah. Brass. They got all that money for all these government projects, Boulder Dam, all that stuff. They just stole people's money out of their accounts. All the money disappeared. Then they told everybody in 1929 the banks failed. Listen, that money didn't disappear. It went somewhere. And it did. Yeah, they took it. And the gold and silver, they did that at the same time, remember? They confiscated it all. And that all went to make them look more powerful. Have these big fancy buildings, these ziggurats, these towers of Babel to government power all over the country. That's where that went. And don't think they can't do it again. They did it in 2008. And people still are flocking to put their money in banks. Don't forget what they did. Don't forget what they did immediately (laughs) after they seized it. 
stay up the price almost 70%. Yeah, yeah. So here we are, Roger, uh, trusting men. The Bible says we are not to trust men. We are not to trust men. What about my wife or my husband? Well, no, the Bible doesn't say anywhere you're supposed to trust them either. <laughs> I had a friend once, Roger, he said his marriage his marriage was built on trust and understanding. He said, uh, she doesn't trust me and I don't understand her. <laughs> and that's the way we've lived all these years. Well, tr- truth is, truth is, and I tell people this and I tell them in all sincerity, the Bible does not give you leave to trust your spouse. The trust of man, according to the Bible, is to our maker, him, and him alone. And if you are, if you have a good spouse, and I'm, I'm sure, oh, if you got a good wife, you got a good husband, you're blessed. What is good? Well, in other words, they're faithful. To whatever degree, they're faithful. But do not trust them to be faithful. Trust God to make them faithful. That's what you should do. I had an old Frisian once tell me, well, it was his son. The old Frisian is up in his 90s. Those, that's that group of people. There's only about 200,000 of them left. They live over there in the Netherlands. They speak a language called Frisian, which is very close to English. The closest language, the closest tongue on the planet to English is Frisian. Well, they speak it. And this Frisian said, I've, and he told his son this, he said, we should strive in life. These are Christian people, I'll add that. We should strive in life to not not to seek a faithful man or a faithful woman. We should not strive to seek someone to trust. We should strive to be trustworthy. That should be the focus of our lives because we will be disappointed to varying degrees because men, we all are not trustworthy to varying degrees, but we are to trust God, our national motto. Our national motto is not el pluribus unum. Our national motto is in God we trust. That's a good motto. And it's amazing, of course, we put it right on money because men tend to trust money. There's no question about that. That's why they want it so bad. They trust it. And when they have it, they, we, well, it makes us feel better. It makes you relax a little more. That's the danger of it. Because God wants you to relax with him because you have him. He wants you to have total tranquility. <laughs> trust him for the future, not money. Back to you, Roger. I wanted to ask a minute ago when you were talking well, about the story of the Good Samaritan and the guy wanting to justify himself. Is that like keeping up with the Joneses? Well, I, I'm sure it is in that case. But his his deal was being a lawyer of the, of the law of the city, a civil law lawyer, in proper terms throughout the world, a civilian. That's what they call a civil law lawyer, a civilian. Hmm. And he wanted he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to be able to say, I am good to my neighbor, and here's who my neighbor is. There's nothing wrong, again, with knowing who your neighbor is, and that's a very defined concept. The Bible defines it very finely in the Bible. Every time you see the words one another in the New Testament occurs many times, that's about your Christian brother. That's not about the rest of the world. That's your neighbor, your neighbor, one another. The, the, the story of the Samaritan is not about everybody is my neighbor. That's ludicrous. Mm-hmm. Everybody is not your neighbor. Uh, I don't know most of the people in the world, and they're not my neighbor. What's a neighbor? That's the man that's nigh to me, nigh. That's the old English word for near. That's the fellow you know. That I, I was saying yesterday, the, the really the, the, the definitive word in, uh, in our common law world is peer. Your peer is right. your neighbor. 
He's the guy that knows you. Okay. He knows your family. He knows your granddad. He lives down the road from you. You know his family. You know each other. That He knows you, and you know him. He grew up with you. That's knowing a lot. That's your peer. And that's really what the word neighbor means in the Bible, and it appears from start to finish. It's foundational to religion. Love your neighbor as yourself. Your neighbor. Who's your neighbor? Again, your peer. No, it's not the guy who grew up in some other city who is uh, Islamic. No, no, he's not my peer. He knows nothing of my circumstances. I don't want him on the jury. I want somebody on the jury, and I've been in front of the jury in a criminal trial for six weeks, and I can tell you for sure, I wanted people on that jury that were from around there where I was from that at least understood how folk act in my part of the world. I was so relieved when we were picking the jury. One of them said, one of them said, well, I know, I know this, I know, I know this fella because I know people down there where he's from. And I know I've heard about him. I know about him and I know his family because I know so-and-so real well who knows him. And you say, well, he didn't know you. No, he didn't. We haven't come close to approximating in America in our common law courts what a peer really is. But it was refreshing to me as we were picking the jury that there was a man there that was from my part of the world that said, yeah, I know, I kind of know who this fellow is. And there was more than one, by the way. And there were some, of course, that didn't. And they tried to throw the jury, and the, the feds, the federal prosecutors, uh, stacked the jury through their inside influence. Amazing thing about the jury, and that's the wonderful thing about our common law, due process, uh, that the, the jury, the way we said it, it can overcome a stacked jury, and did. I was acquitted. I was acquitted of that big charge, conspiracy against the United States. Well, the closer they are to you, that's your peer. That's a very important meaning. So that guy asking that question, it appeared right, but again, I say he was asking it for the wrong reasons, and he was asking the wrong question. The question isn't, who is my neighbor, so I can go out and figure out who my neighbor is and, and be good to him and love him to justify myself before God. You can't justify yourself before God. And you're to love your neighbor. That's something that God enables you to do after he justifies you. Your religion is your response back to God, not you, not you doing something to get him to respond to you. No. The Bible says we love him. Love? Yeah, that's what we, that's our response back. We love him. Why? Because he first loved us. Get your ducks in the right order here. Recognize who Jesus Christ is, and then he can enable you. He's your savior. He can enable you, he will enable you and give you a new heart that makes you want to love your neighbor. And but you gotta know who your neighbor is. But that's secondary, that's not the first thing first thing in the parade here. That's getting the cart before the horse. Doesn't make sense. Well, that's what that means there. That's why he asked that. But I don't think it was right there talking about love of money. He had that. Obviously, Jesus Christ deals with that clearly in other areas in the gospel records. But right there, he was just saying, you've got to ask the right question, and you've got to ask the first question first. You know, lawyers, I was saying this yesterday, I was in law school. We take exams at the end of the semester. You had one shot at passing the class, passed the exam at the end of the semester. And we didn't have to memorize answers. Uh, what we had to do is ask the right questions. If you ask the right questions, you pass the exam. You didn't have to come to the right conclusion, but you did have to have to ask the right question. And if you don't ask the right question, that's what Jesus Christ was saying to this fellow. You're, you're asking the question that comes second. You should be asking the first question. The foundational question comes back to the premise I was saying about Ted. Ted and I, 
we are uh, operating from two different premises. We're assuming there. In order to use logic, you you got to you got to start with a fact yeah. you accept that sure you don't do. prove. Otherwise, logic is circular. And there are some things that are self-proving, as our Declaration of '76 says. We hold these truths to be self-evident. What does that mean? Well, that means self-proving. You don't even have to prove it. It's so obvious. We can take judicial notice, as our common law says. And and uh, Ted and I are, are starting, and it could be, well, I know why, what it is. Uh, these are the things I want to point out. Why do we come to different conclusions when we both believe the Bible and think and believe and are convinced or persuaded it doesn't have any errors in it? And the reason is because we're starting asking different questions, starting with different assumptions. And you got to start with assumptions. Back to you, Roger. That's one of the reasons if I'm talking to somebody, we're talking about doing all this elementary stuff with Cody earlier, and you started with agreement on, on use a dialectical point, okay? And say, listen, let's both agree on this before we start. You're either free or you're bond. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. If you can't start, there's no sense talking any further. If you can't agree on the fundamentals of the discussion, I right. agree. Right. So, listen, we got a few minutes left in the program. We've got a nice full board of folks. I see that Mr. Lou Pat's with us for the first time on a Friday. Anybody want to inject something or ask a question or have a comment on what we've been going over so thoroughly the last hour and 45 minutes? Yeah, please say something. I do. Uh, I just want to. I just want to reaffirm what uh, Brent was saying about the bank being sovereign. Uh, I. uh, I think that there should be enough evidence over the last uh, (laughs) twenty years to to anybody with an objective mind and and self awareness and presence to understand that he's not talking figuratively the the bank central banking foreign banking system is the sovereign power in this land international and and i, I wasn't finished yet <laughs> and and the world uh, and the all world. the They're, plenary men let me inject that you want proof of that? There's a video called All the Plenary Men. You go watch that. It's right in front of you. Black and white. Well, that fellow that, Daryl, you take another breath for another few sentences. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I oh, I have. I always have that. more to say, but <laughs> go ahead. Oh, well, I'm tired of talking, so I, I welcome you. <laughs> comments and plus it colors things up for people a little more well but uh, i'm just going to make a comment about that. if i may well, go ahead then well there's yes, bob somebody. bob's here yeah i've got a little something oh, uh, bob Robert. That, uh, there you are yeah yeah good morning hi hey bud good morning. good morning yeah so i've got something for you mr brent uh so one of my favorite people to listen to ben fuchs uh the bright side he's on uh, gcn live he's a health guy former pharmacist and uh, talks about health care and uh, longevity and great products and so forth but a question that he has posited twice and uh it stopped me dead in my tracks so i'm gonna throw it at you see if you can shed light on it so he talks about the um 
intelligent designer, Heavenly Father, designing everything living on the planet Earth, which I agree with, most people agree with. But then he says, okay, if you believe in the intelligent designer, who created the creator? Or put another way, uh, put another way where did God come from? So, Brent, great one. How would you respond to uh, Ben's question? Where did the creator I was, come from? Well, well the, uh, the creator himself has seen fit to tell us what he wants to tell us. He has done so in a book that the evidence for his truth is so overwhelming that it's embarrassing, utterly embarrassing. That's the Bible. And God describes himself as self-existence, self-existing. You go right back to his name, the very name of God, Yahuha. Yahuha, the folks called it for centuries the Tetragrammaton, the four Hebrew letters, the vowel letters, they call them, because there's... You don't have to close your oral passage or impede your oral passage for any of those letters. Those are the only four letters. They're the, uh, well, those four letters, three of them are there. The three vowel letters, but there are four letters in the name. One of them used twice. And it's the simple, the simple verb occurs over 7,000 times in the Bible. In the Old Testament, the simple verb uh, meaning happen, H-A-P-P-E-N, or it could be translate be stirred, or carry on, or occurred, or it came to pass. Sometimes it's translated, it came to pass. But that's the verb, the verb of undefined action. There is no verb of being in the Hebrew. The Semitic tongues have no verb of being, is, are, was. They had no concept of such things. Everything had to move, had to have action. And that verb of being, God takes it, or our lawgiver takes it and says, this is my name, Yahuha. Well, what does Yahuha mean? It means the happening one, the self-happening one. He's the, the first mover, the prime mover. You say, well, what's behind him? What's behind him? He has not seen fit to reveal that. Is there anything behind him? No, he says there's nothing behind me. I am the beginning and I am the end. I am the alpha. I am the omega. All things are of me. They're from me. All things are from me. And they are back to me. That's what he says. That's the answer. The answer is that we can't know anything. We can't know anything unless the one who knows all lets us know. And not only does he know all, he can't learn anything because there's nothing that can be known that he does not know. And there's nothing that can be known that he has not always known. There never was a time he didn't know all, and there never was a time he could learn anything. And so he is the self sufficient, self-supporting, efficient one. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. He likes it. He doesn't need it. He's self-supporting, self-existent. And that's the way he describes himself. And for us to think beyond that is impossible. We try it. We can conceive of the possibility of something behind God from which he comes, but he doesn't come from anything. That's what he says. He is. You must believe, the book of Hebrews puts it this way. We come back to, what does he say? The book of Hebrews says, in order to come to him, you must first believe that he is. And there in the Greek text, he uses the verb of being, because the Greeks did have a verb of being, means is, just as we do in English. You must believe that he is, that means he exists, and that he is the rewarder of him, who diligently seek him. Thus, Jesus Christ said, seek, 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 and you shall find. And then he goes into the 
description there, as you had pointed out, that when we, this is the, the intelligent design argument put in a little bit different terms. He said, when you see a house, you know that there's a house builder. Every house has a builder. You know that. You don't know who he is, maybe, but you know there was a man that designed and built that house. You see a watch, you know the same thing. Who put it together? Who designed it? There has to be a designer. And when you see the beauty of creation, I'm looking now at stuff I won't describe it because I don't want to say where I am, but it sure is beautiful. This river <laughs> and these trees, they're symmetrical in their growth. The design of the leaves are symmetrical. The heavens, all of it is just obviously designed to the eye teeth. We, we get lost in the minutiae of how it's all put together, the atoms and the molecules and the structure and the crystalline forms. And he did all that. He made my body the way it is, it, fearfully and wonderfully made. But he does not seek, he says, in the beginning, Barashith bara, in the beginning, lawgiver, lawgiver, created, shaped, formed the heavens, the skies, and namely the land, Barashith. And that's where it starts. And he, it says in First John, Jesus Christ was in the beginning with him. He, he was, before him there wasn't anything. He was from the beginning. Well, so that's what the Bible says. I'm just repeating what it says over and over. It says it in different ways. I've just barely touched the numerous instances that it says that. And that's what he has, it has pleased him to reveal to us, to reveal, to uncover, to uncover to us. And we can know a lot, but it is amazing to me that most men, the things that they can know of their maker, they don't give that much attention or time to trying to know. And where do you find it out? Well, more particularly and most extensively and most deeply, you'll find it in that book and that particular revelation called the Bible. Robert? That should be the focus of our... Hello. I don't want my... This is not meant derogatorily because I've listened to Ben Fuchs not in a long time, but and I've spoken with him personally. I like him, okay? but And I think he's a good guy. Do you know he's Jewish? I did not. Okay, that may be a source of the question because of a difference in orientation. Okay. Oh, that yeah. could be. Oh, yeah. That could be. Yeah. No, I wouldn't worry he was Jewish. You got me there. Okay. He I is. would think Fuchs was German, but uh, that's interesting. Well, it's like Adler. Adler can be a Jewish name, and it can be a German name, too. But he is Jewish, I'm not, and I'm not, I, think he's a, I think he's a good guy. I think his programs are great. He's extremely knowledgeable, and I think he does real good oh, yeah. work for folks, okay? Oh, yeah. So, but mm -hmm. I was just saying that because he was raised different. I don't know his background or anything about his childhood or any of that, but he comes from a different orientation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's called Babylonian Judaism, if that's true, and that won't get you to the truth. And everything in it. Everything in it. People say, well, all religion, I've had people say, all religion is good. Yeah, we can agree on that. I had a Hindu guy say that to me one time. He entered a Hindu temple, by the way. I said, no, all, most religion is very bad. Matter of fact, most all religion yeah. is evil. There is a true religion, a true one. James tells us that's what we can call it. I call it that because that's what it is. Uh, but if it's not the true one, it's the doctrines of demons. There is no in-between. Jesus Christ said, you're either all out, full bore for me, or you're against me. There's no, neutrality is not an option for mankind. And most of what is taught 
it's tainted with a whole lot of evil, enough to destroy just a drop of strychnine and a glass of water will kill you, even though it's mostly good water. That's the way it is with the doctrines of demons, and that's what happened in the Garden of Eden. Uh, the one, the one, the one truth. Go ahead, go ahead, Eve. Uh, put the pistol, put the revolver up to your head, and pull the trigger. It's not loaded. I'm telling you, it's not loaded. You don't believe me? That hurts my feelings. I'm a nice guy. Look how beautiful I am. Yeah, that's what happens. And so it's important. The Bible says, "Do not walk in the counsel of the ungodly." nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. That's a progression, a progression, Psalm chapter 1. Do not stand in the way of sinners, sit in the seat of scoffers. But, well, it says blessed is the man who doesn't do that, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, Yahuwah. And in his law he doth chew the cud, both day and night, and he shall be like a tree planted by rivers of waters, whose leaf does not wither. And on and on it goes. Said of Joshua, Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, he was leading the militia, the 12 several tribes, into the land to divide it down the middle and conquer it. Big task. God said to him, if you, he said, do not let the word of my law, that's my word, my written word, my way pointed out, my Torah, that's what all the Bible is, front to front, front to back. He said, do not let it depart from your mouth, but chew the cud therein day and night, and wherever you go, wherever your foot treads, you will have, you could translate that, victory, success. That's simple, and that's what he tells us to do. Why don't we do that? Just do it. Keep your nose in the book as much as you possibly can. Be thinking about it when your nose is not in it. You'll have it in your head. You can think about it. Back to you, Roger. No, I think that's right. I believe we're right at the end of the show today. It's been a real good show. You've carried it most of the way, Brent. And we, I think all of us have yep. been hanging pretty much on every word. So we always appreciate what you bring us on Fridays. Why don't you give folks that may be new to this and new to you where they can get more of that Brent Winters guy. Oh, just go to commonlawyer.com, www.commonlawyer.com, and you can go to the books button. Oh, by the way, Roger, I just got word yesterday, and I've been working with some intelligent personalities, some ambitious, hardworking personalities, and they've got the winterized version of the Bible. A common lawyer, a common lawyer translates and annotates from the original tongues. Uh, 18,000 footnotes approximately, 123 appendices, tracing major themes through the warp and the woof of the text of the Bible. I call it toward a raw translation. I don't want to cook the book, deliver it up from the original tongues as best I see it. But you can get that now. You can get that now uh, by clicking on a link. Clicking on a link. And you go to commonlayer.com. We're just, well, say we. I'm not doing it, but people are doing it. Kind enough to do it. They're working out the bugs. They, you can get at it, and you can, you can obtain it. By going to commonlawyer.com, going to the books button, clicking on the thing that says the winterized Bible or the good book, a common lawyer translates and annotates, I believe. Well, I'm sorry we didn't have more time. I wanted to follow up and ask you if you ever got it arranged where you get it printed on that onion skin paper that you had to get printed in China. Not yet, but we're working on it. Okay, good (laughs) deal. That's next, yeah. All right. Well, listen, uh, as always, Brent, we appreciate you, man, and 
We'll uh, look forward to next Friday and whatever comes up between now and then that's worth talking about. Uh, you have a good weekend. We'll continue to promote your upcoming uh, trial with Ted. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. We'll see what happens over the weekend, the next 46 hours, I believe. And uh, have a good weekend best you can. Um, we'll see you next week. Be safe. And I just appreciate Later. every one of you out there are so important. You, you just don't understand. Okay. But Thank you, guys. I, I sure appreciate you there. I'll weekend. see you next week, guys. Thanks. Yep. Hasta la vista, baby. Yeah.